Hey gang, good morning. It is Pastor Eric Sorensen here in uh, my offices in Roxbury, New Jersey at Hillside Church, uh, coming to you this morning with our Tuesday devotion as we continue our series through 2 Corinthians. Uh, if you were with us last week, you know that uh, that I skipped ahead for whatever reason and ended up giving you a devotion on 2 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, or at least part of it. Uh, and so I figured today I would go back to chapter 7. And for uh, almost really the last five chapters of this book, before we get to chapter 7, really since chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, uh, Paul has spent quite a bit of time defending his ministry. Uh, and we know that he's defending his ministry against these supposed super apostles. And he has listed in detail uh, his sufferings and his integrity, his doctrine, and the reasons why they can indeed trust him as an apostle and as a minister to their congregation. Well, in today's passage, Paul will really conclude that defense before moving on, as we saw last week, to encourage the Corinthians to uh, give the offering that they had promised to give to the church in Jerusalem. So we'll pick it up at verse 2, uh, chapter 7, and we'll read all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 16. It reads like this. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you, I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I write to you, or I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted, and besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you is true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete 
confidence in you. End of reading. Well, wow, that's, there's actually quite a lot here. This, this might be uh, the moment in the letter that Paul wears his heart on his sleeve just as a, as a pastoral type figure to this church more than any other section of the letter. He says he uh, pleads with them from the very beginning, make room in your hearts for us. Now, now, why should the people of Corinth make room in their hearts for Paul? Well, Paul gives the reasons. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. Literally, that could be translated, we've led no one away. We've taken advantage of no, no one. And this is probably a response to accusations that were being leveled against Paul and his companions. You know, they were saying things like, you know, this grace-filled gospel that Paul is talking about, saying that you're completely forgiven of all your sins and you don't have to live by the law anymore, while well, he's leading you astray from being truly obedient and truly faithful. He's probably doing this to gain some sort of money and fame. Those are the kinds of things these super apostles are saying about Paul. And so Paul responds, I haven't done any of that stuff. Please, remember what I have done for you and know that... I love you and I care for you. I'm, I, please make room in your hearts for us. So that's the first thing we see in the passage. His hope is that they will trust him and his companions based on their track record and not based on what these false apostles are saying to them. And yet even as Paul hopes that they will open up their hearts more to him, uh, Paul is comforted by what he's seeing thus far. When you look at verses 4 through 13, it's really all about that. Throughout this letter, you've heard Paul uh, fret about the church being led astray uh, by these super apostles. Nevertheless, he is comforted because while he was in Macedonia, he received this glowing report about the church from his good friend and really disciple Titus. Upon hearing about uh, this, they were, upon hearing about Paul and what Paul was up to, they were said to be, quote, longing for him, mourning for him, and zealous for him. Now, what produced such feelings was a letter that Paul had sent to them, calling on them to correct a wrong in their midst. Now, we don't know exactly what this issue was. Uh, it could be the issue mentioned in the first letter to the Corinthians that we have, that where Paul rebuked the church for being a Almost, almost lauding a couple that were in an incestuous relationship, and he rebukes them and says, "You can't allow that. You need to, you need to deal with that that bad relationship." It could be that that's reported in First Corinthians five. It could be uh, that's the issue he's referencing here. But but most scholars think that there's actually some lost letters that were sent to the Corinthian church, and that this might be referencing a lost letter in which Paul rebukes the church for some other issue. Whatever it is, either way, notice in verse 8 the mixed feelings Paul had about sending this letter. Listen to his words. Just listen to the heart of the man. He says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that letter grieved you, though only for a while. Now, as a point of application here, um, those words, I think, exemplify for us how often uh, preachers and pastors are prone to second-guessing themselves after presenting and preaching to their people. Uh, if most preachers are honest, not all, but a lot of preachers will tell you that Sunday afternoon and Monday morning 
are the hardest times because a lot of the time they're full of all sorts of self-criticism. Was I too harsh? Was I not straightforward enough? Was I not clear? Uh, did they sense that I loved them when I preached to them or did I come off as some kind of angry scold? Uh, those are just a, a tiny set of questions that pastors wrestle with. And in the final analysis, the, the minister, whoever they be, whether pastor or in some other vocation, ultimately needs to look to God's faithfulness to work through and oftentimes in spite of them for the benefit of God's people. Because after all, it is his church and his church will be, will be uh, victorious against the gates of hell, even in spite of the pastor and the pastor's own weaknesses. But thankfully, Paul's letter is used by God. It is used by God in the life of the Corinthian church. Uh, we see that. He says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, I, that wasn't my intention, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Now, it is the tendency when someone begins to confess and repent for some preachers to want to, well, you know, soften the blow, you know, like, well, it's not that bad, you're not that bad of a sinner. But actually, you know, part of the process is actually letting a person uh, go to get to that point. You know, AA refers to it as sort of a person needs to hit bottom. Well, there's a sense in which a person needs to hit bottom in regard to their own righteousness and recognize that their only hope is, in fact, the grace of God. That is what I think Paul is referring to as godly grief here. He contrasts godly grief and worldly grief. What does it look like? Godly grief actually recognizes that you need God. Worldly grief actually forces you to look within and try and fix it yourself. That's not what Paul wants for this church, and that's not, thankfully, what happened to them. Because they had godly grief that led them to receive, once again, the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Paul says it leads to earnestness and eagerness to clear themselves and indignation about what they had done to go astray. Maybe indignation towards some of these super apostles that they were so drawn to. It led to fear in the most healthy sense of the word, you know, worship and adoration to the Lord. It leads to longing and zeal. And yes, even the word punishment is used. And I think punishment in this context is used to describe how the church dealt with issues that they had been turning a blind eye to. Uh, they actually dealt with the problems. They, repentance produced fruit, in other words. And Paul is very, very encouraged to hear that. They have gone above uh, and beyond the call of duty, in other words, to fix the situation. So, so repentance here in this church that Paul had, had written to them that they needed to do that, that they needed to walk away from this super apostle group, that they needed to rebuke problems within the church and not just you know wink at it, um, led to this very godly grief and therefore repentance. So, so Paul rejoices over the church. Paul rejoices over the church in the last couple of verses because of how they respond. Paul ends with a really remarkable statement. He says, I have complete confidence in the church. Complete confidence in the church. Now let me just wrap up here by pointing out something that I think is important to remember in light of this statement Paul makes. If you remember... The Corinthian church, especially when we read the first letter, 
is shown to be one of the most messed up, immoral, uh, doctrinally compromised churches in all of the biblical literature or all of the New Testament epistles. They've got sexual sin, they've got uh, problems with lawsuits between believers in the church. I mean, you've got, it. the list goes on and on. You've got factions, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter, you know. Oh, I, I follow Jesus, you know. The, the Corinthian church is a hot mess. They really have been. And yet when Paul thinks about this church, I'm struck every time that he, even in the midst of rebuking them or pleading with them to open their hearts to him as he does here, every time he ends up saying something amazing about them. So in the first letter to the Corinthians, he refers to them as sanctified, set apart, saved. He's, he, has, he, he calls them saints. The same people that he's going to rebuke so harshly, he refers to them as, in fact, saints right then, present tense. And here, a church that had been so prone to being led astray by this uh, group of false teachers, the super apostles. Paul says, now, again, I have complete confidence in them. Here's, here's what I want to get to. He doesn't have complete confidence in them because they're so great. The church is an imperfect group of people. It's filled with imperfect sinners that will do imperfect sinful things to each other. History shows this. Being a pastor now for 12 years, I've experienced it. <laughs> but the reason Paul has confidence in the church is ultimately not because of them. It is because of the head of the body that they are possessed by Jesus Christ. If you look to, and this is just an, a point of application, especially for uh, those of us who have struggled with church and have had difficult experiences in church, and I know there's a good number of you that have had difficulties. If we look to the church and the individual members of it, the pastors, whatever, to sort of uh, give us confidence in them and to make us believe that they're good enough, we will be disappointed. I promise you, uh, every church, every pastor, no matter how great it looks from the outset, there'll be things that let you down. But you can still have confidence that God is in the midst of that church because where Jesus says where two or three are gathered in his name, he is there in the midst. And so I would just urge you, as Paul does here, as Paul does throughout this letter, don't give up on the church. Don't give up on the church. The church is the family that God has placed you in. And when you're struggling with it, you're not the first. Remember that. You're not the first. But don't give up on the church. God is working there, and he's got gifts for you there. Yeah, it's got problems. It's not perfect. But Paul looks at a church like Corinth. He sees their problems, and yet he says in the final analysis, because of who their Lord is, because of what Jesus has done for them, he has confidence that Jesus is there. So, that is my hope as well as the pastor of the churches that I get to pastor. And that is where I place my confidence too. All right, gang, that is it for today. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the week. May God richly bless you. And I'll plan on seeing you next Tuesday.